Why, hello. Welcome to the internet. Home <laughs> of everything these days. Uh, so, uh, welcome to uh, Tell Me Why I'm Wrong. That's its name. That's our show, and this is our season one bonus episode. Yay! It's a bonus! You guys did or did not give us the uh, reviews that we asked for. Um, you know, we, we don't really know by the... We got it. We've gotten, we've gotten a couple so far, and, and we're just, you know, assuming that you'll uh, do the rest before um, before this episode actually posts. So, yeah. Um, uh, so thank you. Thanks to everyone who, who wrote uh, reviews and rated us in iTunes. That's really great. The rest of you, it's not too late. iTunes is still there. It's not going anywhere. Uh, poke your heads in there and, and give us a review. Um, before we get into, um, our topics and, and this is, this is going to be different from a regular show cause it's a bonus show. So we're just going to be kind of jumping all over the place, following up on some stuff from earlier in the season and, and uh, maybe even getting into a couple new things. We'll see. The um, theme is still why, why we're wrong, because it turns right. out that when you have six conversations, or really in some ways 12 conversations in a row, two things happen. One, you forget, uh, you realize that you could have said something smart, but you didn't, and you want the chance to say it. And you realize that the other person is still wrong, and they need to be corrected still more. So, so uh-huh. there's, just, there's just more to do. Right. Um, and... Um, well, I guess that's it really. Yeah. Well, and and also just, I'm I'm still, I'm still stuck on this, um, this, uh, I guess I'm still excited about learning what, um, Esprit d'Escalier means. So, uh, so we needed to have a whole episode about it. We could call it that. Oh, we did. We we just did. (laughs) I mean, I just changed the, uh, just changed the title in in the little thingy. So it still says S1 bonus to me. Oh, this is S one. I changed. It says season one bonus. L'esprit de Scalier. Now. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, again, thanks to everyone who who listened. We've we've had about seven hundred and fifty downloads of the show so far. Wow. So I don't know if that's good or not, but it's. I mean, I think it's. I I guess it feels good to me. Um, we've had yeah. downloads in from six countries. What countries are they? You guess. No, I can't guess. Guess well, you'll get okay. The United States. Yes, that was that was our number one country. USA. Uh, USA. I feel like I ha- New Zealand is one of them, right? I've yes. seen that. Yep. 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 That's all I'm going to guess because uh, anything else is just going to make me feel dumb. And okay. we have a whole hour for that to happen. Ha 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 ha. Uh, right. So so U.S. New Zealand, uh, the U.K. Okay. Canada. Places where people speak English. Yep. Yep. Uh, Germany. Oh. Yeah. Uh mm. and uh Cambodia. What? Cambodia. <laughs> I heard uh, you. I uh-huh. just was expressing surprise. That's oh, great. Oh, okay. Yeah, we we also we had uh downloads from one, two, three, four, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't know, ten more than ten states here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20 21 states. Wow. America. Yeah. That's almost half the states. Almost half the states. Um, and it's not just coastal elites. We got downloads <laughs> in, we got four downloads out of Iowa. Boom. All right. 
Yeah. This is great. Yeah. So anyway, thanks thanks to everyone. It, it really means a lot to us. We've we've had a blast doing this, and uh, we we hope you've enjoyed uh, listening. So um, yeah, uh, that that's enough of that. Let's let's get to let's get to arguing about stuff. Uh, yeah. Sophie, why don't why don't you take it away? Well, I think the thing that has been bugging me the most is I really think we um, I think we missed an opportunity when we were talking about poetry particularly um, the relationship between technology and poetry. And I, I feel so, like... So is this all the way back in S1E1? All the way back. No, that was se- no, I think that's the second one. S1E2, yeah. 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 First the first segment. episode was perfect. Who cares? Yeah. But the okay. second episode, <laughs> I think we had some problems because, first of all, I think our premise was totally flawed. We never got we never one. got to a point where we had anything like a geographical or a temporal like limit on it. It was like started with like 500 years and then we tried to narrow it to like 50, but we still didn't have any good sense of dates or a place. I mean, it sort of was roughly the English speaking like Anglo American world, but that just like seems somehow not, I mean, it was just never defined and that's a problem. But I think also there were two other flaws. One is starting from the premise that uh, the main way that people consumed poetry was silent reading. Yeah, I don't think right. that's true at all. Huh. And I think the other problem is that uh, at a certain point in the conversation, we shifted to talking about poetry having lost ground as entertainment. And mm. I just don't think that quite works. I mean, I don't know what we're like, you know, I just don't think we're matching it again. I mean, I'm not sure that po- I, I don't know that I would like ever want to only think of poetry as entertainment and i certainly don't think that i mean then you have to sort of say anything that's like kind of like intellectually puzzling um has lost ground as entertainment i think that's probably true but that's not just because of technology so i I just feel like our our premise was the premise for our argument was flawed all along let's back up a little bit and just just uh, remind our listeners about what we're talking about that that season one episode two first segment i i was arguing uh you're arguing that no one no one reads poetry anymore right or cares about it right because of technology yeah yeah that (laughs) that that uh uh that technology made other forms of entertainment more immediate and um and sort of uh crowded out sort or or i should say it sort of took took away poetry's popular audience which then caused caused uh, poetry to become turn in on itself and become more intellectual and um uh obscure yeah Uh, and i I think i think we just don't have a proper timeline i mean you know i mean there there are a lot of like just like basic uh um facts missing from my account yeah Um, i mean you start with radio but that's well past the moment when i think if you're talking about poetry as a popular entertainment um, I mean, I think that ship has sailed long before radio. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, but I, you know, I think I would also just say that I think it's important to remember that silent reading isn't really, I just don't think it's really the, um, I don't think it's the right rubric because. So talk, talk about that. Yeah, I, I people, mean, people may not know this. Sure. I mean, as late as I would say, hmm, the turn of the century. So like late 1800s, I, I, I think people are still reading poetry out loud, if not as entertainment, certainly as um, as a pastime. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and are they reading it out loud to themselves or to each other? They're reading it out loud to each other. Reading it out loud to each other. And I mean, you've probably seen, like, if you've ever watched any, like, costume drama about mm, either Br- Britain or America in this time, like, there's always some, some scene Sorry, which where time? Or the like, uh, century? Yeah, I mean, anything from, anything from, like, yeah, the, the probably, like, what, late 1700s to the late 1800s i'm thinking like there's always the scene where the women are sewing or knitting or doing some kind of craft um you know housework needlework and some dude is reading out loud to them and it's usually i mean sometimes it's sometimes it's like a theological text sometimes it's a novel but very often it's poetry um hey uh sense and sensibility right and kate winslet gets really mad at hugh grant because he's not reading with enough emotion so this is something that i think um it isn't just people kind of reading to themselves. I I, I think that's a great point. Um, you don't think it changes your argument, no, though? I think I think it I think it reinforces my argument because you're because because the radio comes in and changes. Yeah, that. And, but you got to remember and, radio plays, right? I mean, Sylvia Plath writes a, writes Three Women, which is a really famous, sure, uh, much listened to radio play. Okay, poetry on the radio. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a transitional thing. There's still like a serious contest contest in the UK every year for radio plays. That's cool, and I, yeah. I imagine it's mostly like a state funded thing. It's the BBC. Yeah, but why? Why would that? Why does that change anything? You no, think just, just because the state funds it, it means people don't care about it? I'm saying it's it, it's it's maybe people do care about it, but it's something that uh, my my guess. And again, I'm talking out my butt here. My my guess <laughs> is it's something that that mostly exists because like some rich educated people decided they wanted it to exist. So I think that might be true in the United States when you talk about PBS, but it is not true about the BBC. I mean, I'm not saying that that's why the BBC exists, but I mean, sub subsidies for art in Europe. It's, it's a whole other story than okay. here. Whole um, other story. But, uh, but I think that's also interesting because one of the things we were talking about in, in that second episode where we kept going around in circles was about whether or not poetry ever was popular sure. entertainment and and it seems like you're talking about a scenario where at least in our in our imagination it was sort of like a normal thing for people to hang around at, at least people of a certain class to be in, in certain places to be hanging out listening to poetry mm-hmm. reading it or listening to it and that that was like a totally normal thing and 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 i would just maintain that that's uh less of a normal thing now and that happened for reasons well, it happened for reasons. That's like the most hated phrase. I know. You already you said that in, uh, uh, I think episodes, in this, so the I was, same episode. I was, uh, tro- I was trolling you. By you were. But that. I, I just want to maintain that I, I, there is not a shadow of a doubt, not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that someone, probably an historian, possibly a literary scholar, has these numbers. They, they, hey, somebody's got them. Somebody's got them. And they story- know what, what portion of the population was doing what when with poetry. I am not even the slightest bit unsure so i think I, I i love your point about silent reading that that's that that is not as much of a thing as i made it out to be in my account and um i don't know yeah i think i think for the rest of it i agree i think our discussion is is still lacking for actual facts so if if you know facts <laughs> call us up yeah hit us up you go to yep. go to our website tmwiw.net go to the contact form uh, we'll get to the bottom of this. Send us some facts. We we, yeah. we love facts, and and uh, they make conversations more interesting. They do, and more accurate. And I'll just say one other thing, which is I think if we ignore Russia and the Soviet Union, we do so at our peril because, again, that's a really <laughs> different way of thinking about poetry and thinking about its place in society and in politics. Saying that poetry has a whole different 
is, is has a different place in the culture of yeah, Russia. I mean, yeah. So can, and, can you talk more about that? I, I know, sure. I, I mean, know nothing ni- about that. In I the mean, 1920s just, just... and 30s, you know, poets are writing, you know, Mendelstam, Osip Mendelstam writes this, uh, this little poem about Stalin, which literally gets him sent to a gulag where he eventually oh, perishes. Okay. Um, but, but poets are, I mean, basically it, it becomes, uh, it, it, be, it becomes a, a, a situation in which if you, f- if you're not praising Stalin in your poetry, that's seen as an, that's seen as a critique. And so, but poets are writing all these amazing poems that are, um, that are like protests against the regime. And because they're afraid, they are not writing them down. They're memorizing them. Mm-hmm. And so they get together and they all, they each all memorize. And that's why we have these poems. And they're this, this group of poets and, and lovers of poetry carrying these poems around in their minds to protect each other, but also to protect the poetry itself. And I think like, you know, that's the same time when you're thinking, okay, like people don't care about poetry anymore because they have radio or eventually other entertainments like television. And I mean, at this, you know, it's a, it's a totally different, it's a whole other thing. In this other place, and right. that's been true for a long time. I mean, poetry still occupies a really politicized place. So I think we got to step away from, like, I don't know, what, if feet English speakers or something. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That- and I don't think, I mean, the, the question of difficulty is also not the same in some places. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we have, like, a... Well, we difficulty is going to depend We have a on preference for plain plain spokenness yeah yeah but i mean ted kuzer was was poet laureate and i don't think he uses any words that are like more than two syllables in any of his poems which doesn't mean that i don't like them i i like some of them but you know this is sort of like he he's seen as like the people's poet and and that's a different thing that's different in other places right yep right yeah that's what i think about that cool uh moving on yeah so uh so you were wrong about that and then and we were probably both wrong were there other yeah. things we were wrong about we want to or write about we want to get to the bottom of um i mean i got well, more but you it's your turn really yeah no i mean i uh uh let's just keep going roughly in order and, and talk about yeah. uh um go Episode back to three? german yeah and uh, our great war double feature yeah um so I, I wrote down follow up on German, Austria, and comic books. Uh, I, yeah. I don't remember what specifically I wanted to follow up. <laughs> well, we were going to follow up that. when Wonder Woman came out and we were going to watch it, right? Is uh, that what you meant? Maybe that's no, what you meant. No, it's not no. what I meant. Okay, no, well. I knew, I knew Wonder Woman wouldn't be out yet. Okay. And it's, and it's not. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I listened to that segment again this morning and I still have no idea what I was thinking. But th- I just, I, I do think that, that all that conversation about comic books could have gone in, in a million other directions that it didn't go. And, well, um, what's one that you think would be, would have been good? Nah, that's fine. Let's, <laughs> well, you, you want to talk about Germany and Austria. I, and, and I, maybe I do. It'll, maybe it'll come out. I mean, I think, I think listening back, I, I was chagrined the extent to which I kind of let the conversation be pushed in a direction that was suggesting that things happen in and to Germany and Austria because of external forces, specifically the allied force, you know, al- al- allied countries. So again, let me, rather let me than, just, yeah. So, let me just so, jump in and, sure. and set up. So episode three, uh, I was, I was making an argument about why German and Austria aren't one country, even though they speak the same language. And um, yeah. And, and so my account, well, it had to do with some internal things, but a lot of external things too. Yeah, yeah. it's like you know, other countries didn't let them when they right, tried to, right. and blah blah blah. Right, and I think I mean I would just say that I wish to grind up myself because it's you know it is my job to sort of as a Europeanist to get people to get Americans to understand Europe not only from their own kind of. Um, 
vantage point as U.S. citizens or, or, or dwellers in the U.S. And I think I didn't do a good job of that. And I, and I think, but I think part of it is that it is hard for those of us who are American to get our brains there. You know, how, how do we, um, how do we start to think about what, what the world looks like from that other place? And, um, so, you know, I just hope that maybe next season we'll all get a chance to, to, to do a better job with that. But I also think that one thing that happened in that conversation, as well as a conversation that we had later, and I now don't remember when it was, but Amos, you keep forgetting about World War II. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you said something about like... Margaret Thatcher was really worried. Oh yeah, and about you said like well, some other stuff. Happened some other in stuff between. happened yeah. in between, and and then that happened. That was like again, we had another conversation where it was like, okay, but like World War Two happened, that changes things radically, and I think it's just important to remember that. So you're <laughs> saying when 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 talking about 20th century central Europe. european history it's important to remember don't, world war ii don't forget world war ii yeah seems, and i think seems fair i think also like just thinking about one of the things that we talked about in this conversation was um you know was this impulse to as you put it kind of keep germany in a weak position and i think right. that might be an impulse but the uh, the effective or emotional drive behind that is really different in different moments in time. And I wish I had said, mm. you know, I think that it's not a question of fear or nervousness in 1918, 1919, 1920. It's, 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 vengeance. It's, it's vengeance. Yep. It's 100%. Well, probably it's probably not unmitigated vengeance. There's other stuff in there too. Pain and sorrow and loss and yeah. rage and all that stuff, but it's vengeance. You know, it's, it, this is a, this is a punitive treaty and that's not the same in 1945 and, and it's not yeah, the same in 1990 either. So, uh, so those fears and, you know, those negative emotions are going to change over time. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yep. Hmm. What else we got? Well, yeah. Mm. Hmm. I, 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 uh, yeah. Plus okay. Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she was, she, she, <laughs> she says in a speech that there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals like together. And that, I mean, that's bonkers. So who, who cares what she thinks? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I care. I think she's interesting and I I don't I don't like hate her as much in a knee jerk way as some people do, but I do uh, think yeah. like she has a really weird perspective on a lot of like any any kind of like communal response is just going to be weird when it's filtered through her because she doesn't really believe that there is any such thing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what that means that that there's no there is no uh society only individuals i would need to see the context for whether or not i mean she said she said it in a speech yeah right but but it's it's either i mean it's either crazy or it's <laughs> or it might be trivial though what do you mean well in that there is no like thing called society that's out there acting you know what i mean it's it's the sum well, it's not unitary it, yeah it's the sum it's total of individuals and institutions work i don't think that's what she meant well that's what i mean it's either crazy or it's trivial <laughs> you know what i mean she yeah. I, and I would I would need to see the way more contents context yeah. before before just jumping to it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I don't think it's crazy, but I do think it's um, a little bit antisocial or asocial. Maybe again, maybe maybe not. In I mean, the, I guess crazy isn't like a. Are you using that as a technical term? <laughs> you are a mental health professional. <laughs> is this like this is in the DSM? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just you know um, just batshit. <laughs> it's like, that just takes up a page. JB. Uh, JB. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just one th one thing, I guess, from that same episode that I wanted to 
come back to and just push back on a little bit is is I guess related to the same point about the emotional valence of uh of the the sort of post war settlements after World War One versus World War Two. Yeah. And where I'd sort of talked about uh Allied efforts to keep Germany weak, uh to make sure that the same sort of thing didn't happen again. And, and you're saying like, well, no, they weren't really afraid because Germany was a mess at that point. Um, and I guess, I guess all I would say is maybe, maybe they weren't afraid and this is going to sound really dumb, but, but maybe they should have been if they weren't. Um, and it's going to sound dumb because as you know, world war two happened. Um, <laughs> you remembered. I, I remember someone reminded me and now I remembered, but, but my, my point is that, uh, you know, as much of a mess as Germany was after World War II, it was still the largest, most industrialized, and most populous. Well, I guess that's the same as largest. No, in not true, though. Not Wasn't true because it? no, because you forgot about the British Empire. Uh, okay. Yeah. And... They've got people, they've got money, they've got soldiers, and they've got lots of industry. But, but I, think, I think there's a different reason that they should have been afraid, and I think that the economist John Maynard Keynes does a really, he does a really good job oh, yeah, of explaining right. why, but he also sets up some problems for himself and what, others. What, I mean, in Keynes, he actually he, he, he worked in the, for the exchequer or whatever, or he worked in the British government and helped yeah. negotiate the Treaty of Versailles, right? Uh, he was well, there for the negotiations. He gets totally he gets disillusioned. Well, he gets he gets like really upset about it and disillusioned. And he thinks it's a terrible idea, which it is. Um, and you know, he he talks about it it, it being an economic disaster that's going to cause other kinds of disasters, like right. humanitarian and political disasters. And the idea that there are there are people starving in Central Europe. I mean, by the end of the war, there's there is starvation. There are starvation conditions in Berlin as well as in Vienna, and um, and and in Italy as well. There's a, people certainly face a famine until. I think or into the early twenties, um, and, and remember, you know, Italy ends up on the winning side, but doesn't start there in World War One. So there's a lot of questions. About, I mean, he has like, some great uh, critiques that this this punitive treaty, particularly about the reparations, that are, you know, he says, look, you, you're going to end up with some real problems, and especially you're going to have to worry about the political order being overturned. And he's right about that. Here's mm. the, here's the problem, though. His book is really popular. And in a which, lot of people. Which book is that? Uh, Economic consequences of the peace, and people in Britain really buy it, and they think that he's right. And so one of the things that happens is that there's this sort of spotty enforcement. The treaty is extremely punitive. It's really harsh. It's 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 impossibly harsh. But then the enforcement is inconsistent. And hmm. this makes things difficult because it allows resentment to increase and to build and a sort of sense of entitlement yeah, on the part it, of Germans. And yeah. it starts to feel arbitrary then. Yeah. I mean, it was always arbitrary, right? Like my students are always like, wait, but how, wait, I don't understand how saying, Germany started World War One. Like that doesn't make any sense. And it does and it doesn't. But, but, but I, you know, I, I, uh, I've worked in programs where I need to sort of enforce rules and consequences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if, if you do it consistently, then people sort of start to accept it as just the way it is. And right. when you do it inconsistently, then it feels like a great injustice. Yeah. And when some of the people who are responsible for enforcing them, are agreeing that it's a great injustice and yet doing it anyway hmm. sometimes but not all the time that you know that's not a great geopolitical uh sure. like but relationship to in, have in a way doesn't that just suggest that the the 
I mean, the problem isn't Keynes there. The problem is that the the consequences were so onerous that they couldn't really be sort of politically, they couldn't really be enforced uh, consistently. I mean, I'm not saying that Keynes is like he's made this happen, but his but but his book is extremely influential yeah, and it's very convincing. Again, I'm thinking of like a similar situation. Like we, you know, we had a, we had a rule at my program where if you were smoking outside of a smoking area, you would get two weeks probation and probation means you're not allowed to leave hospital grounds. Um, uh, and second offense is an automatic discharge. And, uh, it was such a, um, such an onerous, uh, such an onerous consequence that staff wouldn't enforce it Mm -hmm. because they just felt like assholes then. Mm -hmm. Um, and then someone would try to enforce it, and then that staff would get, you know, made into a bad guy by the, um, by the people in the program who were who got caught, even though they're just following the rules and blah blah blah. So, so this, yeah, I think I think having, I don't know, just having consequences that 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 don't seem okay and don't seem fair leads to leads to inconsistent enforcement yeah but i mean i guess my only point is that part of the reason that people get convinced that they're unfair has to do with canes okay yeah yeah but uh for people who don't know canes was super super interesting guy very uh, interesting guy made a fortune in the stock market like he wasn't just a brilliant economist he was actually like a brilliant trader um i didn't know he made that much money that's so interesting i mean i yeah. knew he was sort of like yeah you know, he's elite already to start with but made a made a killing and he, i think he was a total swinger too he wasn't a swinger. Oh, what do you yeah. mean he was a swinger? Well, he was gay. I think he was bi and had like. Well, he had parts. a wife. He had a wife. Do, I, swinger. I, mm, I mean, he's 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 buddies with the Bloomsbury folks, and I mean, they're yeah. all they all. Are, I mean, I would say free free love is what free love. what, yeah, what we would say. Okay. I mean, swinger makes me think of like these key parties in the seventies, and I, I think that he was a fairly like serious the 20s guy version of uh, of a swinger. Well. I, I don't think that's quite right. I, well, now, I mean, history of sexuality, like, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing too. It is a thing. It is. There was something else, something else we touched on where I thought we were going to get into that more. Oh, it was into, Wonder Woman. Into swingers? No, it was there. There we go. That's what I wanted to talk about with Wonder Woman. The, the, you may have noticed this in the show notes to, uh, to the episode three where I, I put your Jill Lepore book. Yeah, in the, in the show Sorry, notes. Sorry, Dr. Lepore. I feel like I was a jerk. Well, no, I'm just saying that that wasn't actually the book that I was trying to think of. Oh, okay. Um, the one I was. Yeah, trying right. To you come put up a different. With. Yeah. Yeah, was um, Wonder Woman Unbound: The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine, and and one of the one of the things that that book uh, contains, as as I'm told, since I haven't actually read it is uh <laughs> is is that uh wonder woman's creator was into all this like um i think he he had like multiple wives and was into like all kinds of uh, bdsm stuff um so there's like all this stuff where like wonder woman loses her powers if she's tied up by a man and uh i know okay like, yeah just all this wow, like, crazy, all right yeah 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 crazy stuff where where uh her um in some ways she's like really progressive because she's like the first female superhero, but in other ways there's this really um, regressive weird stuff that get gets mixed in there too. Um, mm. And anyway, I guess there's all, all kinds mm. of crazy stories about the, the guy who created her. Interesting. Uh, huh. Okay. I had no idea. I didn't know any about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. 
Um, let's let's move on a little bit. I, I want to talk more about Star Wars: The Force Awakens. I know you do. Uh, so, I know you do. So we we this movie came up a few times during the season. Um, uh, you hated it. You did it, not like it. So here's You're the wrong. thing. I have, I, I have such complicated feelings about this movie, which is why I keep trying to talk to people about it, and no one wants to talk to me about so, it. So here's the thing. How about this? I have one thing to say about it. So okay. I'm going to say that thing, yeah, and then you it. can say all your stuff. And then I think that's great. I think that's probably going to work better, because it's, it's, it, if I say my thing, I'll just shut, shut the conversation down. So let's just open it up, which is I actually think that the, my experience of The Force Awakens suggests to me that it is just like the original. Right. Uh, pretty pretty much just the same, but less racist, less sexist, and with higher production values. And I agree with those other, last three parts. Uh, other than that, I, I don't care. I mean, who cares? Like, why? why like, this is what I don't oh, understand. Oh, I don't know, because maybe, maybe we like art criticism. We like trying to tell the difference between things that are good and things that are bad. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but it seems like some of your critique is predicated on your love of the original. No. But if you don't love the original, then you don't no, then no. You're not no, no, going to no. care. No, that's I, not right. No, 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 no. I'll I'll use the original just to to contrast to show how they're different. And, okay, and and that'll be part of an argument for why Star Wars, the original one, is good and the Force Awakens is bad. I mean, I'll just say but, I don't need to Force see Awakens... either of them ever again. Like okay. that was it was fun that time, but so, no more. Sophie, I'm just going to pretend you really care about this though, so okay. that I can so that I can talk. Get it out, man. Yeah. So, um, uh. So Force Awakens, let's just start with my my reaction the first time I saw it. I, I was pretty excited for it. Uh, it had been getting good buzz, and I was really enjoying it, watching it, up until sometime in the third act, where I was kind of like, oh, Wait, which know. one's the third act? How do I know it's the third act? Did a curtain come down in the middle? I wasn't aware. I, you know, I assume that the you know the last 20 minutes of a movie is the oh, third okay. act. Okay. But, but the, the, I they, don't remember the plot at all. Well, they, they, they go to Starkiller Base, and there's the X-Wings that have to fly through the trench to blow up the thing. While... The fact that you even know what was happening in those action scenes says to me that we're watching movies in very different ways. Uh, seems plausible. I mean, I think the, <laughs> like... the, fact, the fact that you think that Star Wars and The Force Awakens are basically uh, equivalent, except for those differences you mentioned. So I think Which make it better. I think that that's, says that we're watching it in very different <laughs> ways. Okay, but keep going, keep going. Well, so so at that point, I started to kind of groan a little bit, but, but there Why? was so... Um, it just seemed really lazy. Why? Uh, it just, so it was... It was uh, it was lifting stuff from the first movie for no. So it does re- matter. So it does so, matter. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, Sophie, stick with me here, okay? <laughs> I'm just talking about my initial response. Okay. And I'll get into like my real yeah. critique. So anyway, the the curtain ended. Like there were parts where I was like cheering and like really excited. Aww. Then the movie ended, and I was yeah. like, "Well, that was enjoyable, but um, it's not gonna that that movie is not gonna hold up." Like. Uh, you mean like over time? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. That that movie was it's it's not going to hold up. And it and it took me a little while to figure out exactly why that is. And I and again, I think that the the differences between that movie and, and the original Star Wars I think are illustrative not just of these movies but about uh what makes for successful storytelling in overall, which I think is is should be interesting to people who don't even care about Star Wars. Um, but so I think, I think a, a lot of the criticisms of the force awakens when it came out sort of centered on, on how much it lifted from star Wars. Okay. And to me, that's, that's not, 
in and of itself a problem. Like you can have uh, homages and uh, to a certain extent you need to pull stuff in order to establish continuity and blah, blah, blah. My problem was, was how uh, haphazard it all was. Like it pulled things out of their context. It pulled things from the original movies, but took, took the sort of dramatic context out and then just kind of jammed them together and thought that it would still have the same emotional resonance, um, mm. even though it wasn't serving the same dramatic function in the new movie. So it was just sort of like, oh, you remember this thing from the other movie. Have the feels. Have the feels from the first movie. That's so interesting because I had lots of feelings and I don't remember anything about the first movie. That's I don't and I have you... no feelings about the first movie at all. I don't, like, I, have, I don't care about Luke Skywalker. I care minimally about Leah. I care slightly more about Chewbacca and, cool. and the robots. And Han Solo is just like, he's just an ass. I don't care. Uh, sorry, I'm going to get like some kind of like, I don't know, I'm going to get hate I don't mail now. Our, our, our listeners don't like that. <laughs> but like, I I liked the characters in Force Awakens like a thousand times more. I just thought they so, were more interesting and human. And I, 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 think the, I think the actors are much better. But I think I think it was all... I think, well, maybe that's I true. think everything to like about those characters came from the actors and the just the ridiculous amounts of charisma that uh daisy ridley john boyega and uh, oscar isaac have isaac isaacson oscar isaac? i don't know anyway those those three people are just they're just oozing ridiculous amounts of charisma and i think that helps the script get away with the fact that none of them is well developed as a character um there's just there's just nothing. But you th- but you think that like that like Han Solo is well developed as Han, a character. He, so so it's a specific type of character. Is it naturalistic? Absolutely not. It's a uh, it's a it's a very simple but very clear character arc. He's a, a self centered rogue who's only out for money and himself and maybe sex a little bit, but mostly money and to save his own butt. And then at the end, he has. Because of how much he's come to care for uh, Luke and Leia, but primarily Luke, he comes back, risks his own neck to save them all, and becomes like a real good guy. But it's, isn't that by the end know, of the third movie that that happens? No, no, no it happens oh, okay. at the end of the first movie. The mm. first movie is completely self-contained. Um, and that's like, again, it's... it's I just it's find not, it not memorable. I don't okay. remember any of these things about it. So, but again, like that, that may not be like the most original or, or interesting character arc, but it's very clear and, um, and it's all right there. I couldn't tell you anything about the character arcs of what, of, of the characters. What are you talking about? John Boyega's character has like an amazing, like, uh, emotional awakening in the first like five minutes of the movie, which doesn't seem to have Which is like anything kind of beautiful to do and... with and oh no no i was totally on board with that like when that happened in the first five minutes i was like oh shit this movie <laughs> this movie is gonna do some interesting stuff like <laughs> like i'm i am so on board for this and then and then it didn't seem to have it didn't have anything to do with anything that happened after that and his character in no way nothing about that character and the rest of the movie seemed to have anything to do with someone who like just had some sort of moral emotional awakening based on like not wanting to be involved in in slaughtering people and being slaughtered yeah i mean he's like scared for a while and he's running away and then he's not 
Okay. Well, maybe. I mean, I guess I think part of the thing here that we're always going to be at cross purposes, and I know that you say that you're not like doing a critique com- based on comparison, but I, I kind of think you are. It's it's just because you just can't to, esca- you can't escape it. And, I'm just and trying I, to establish the difference between like simple but clear storytelling. And, right and I yeah and jumbled storytelling. So I reject that I I utterly my own experience, my like particular like cognitive and emotional reaction to any of the early Star Wars uh has absolutely zero to do with clarity. None of it seems clear. It all seems completely like I can't follow it. I don't know what's happening. And so, so like the, so, so if this one wasn't clear, it seems like I I mean, but for me, a lot of action movies aren't clear. So I guess like, I don't really, it depends on what, I mean, that's certainly true, but the good ones at least have, I mean, the good ones are, are very clear or, or when they're not clear, it's for a specific purpose, not because they couldn't be bothered to write a script. But I'm not sure that that's. I mean, can you really be sure this because they couldn't be bothered to write? A yeah, script? no, no, they were doing rewrites like while they were shooting. They were doing like, I mean, which is not unusual. Well, which is not unusual. But then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, they have no idea where these characters are going. They're making this up as they go along. Like I think that's clear just watching the movie. I but guess. but they were doing like major major revisions uh, during filming. Like uh, uh, Harrison Ford broke his ankle or something, so they had to stop. They couldn't shoot like a bunch of stuff with him for a few weeks, and so they like went back and reshot a bunch of stuff with uh, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega to uh, sort of punch up their relationship, which I'm sure improved the movie. Um, but uh, I just I just don't think the movie I don't think it fits I don't think it hangs together. I think each individual scene is like totally uh, totally charming and um, delightful, uh, and but there's no there's no dramatic there's no like overall plan for the for the drama um in the movie so so it's constantly working at cross purposes with itself i mean i'm gonna have to concede because i don't remember any of this except for that like i will say it means it's meaningful to me in some way that the protagonist is female that she's the potential jedi that the yoda-ish character is also female and that there's some like ethnic diversity in the movie like that's redemptive to me i totally agree with that i think that's awesome and i and i to be honest i think it's also like a little bit redemptive for disney Mm, Um, okay you know like disney bought lucasfilm a few years back they bought marvel a few years back and you know this is a company with let's say not a great history when it comes to uh <laughs> race and representation um okay, Go- yeah, google sure. song of the south um Aww. i mean and that's that's just like a really egregious example from when racism was rampant in popular culture but even you know much later um yeah i mean it doesn't yeah there's just just like lots and lots of of uh casual racism in in disney stuff and they've really really gone to um great efforts in the last few years to uh really improve representation and to tell stories uh that aren't just about white people and to do it in a really i think respectful non-tokenish sort of way um and i think i think it's it's pretty clear that that's something that comes from the top of the company because it seems to be happening not just in sort of like mainline disney stuff but mm-hmm. but in marvel and lucasfilm like this is something that i mean i i think it's great uh and you know i saw a tweet a little while ago about someone going to see um rogue one with his father who was uh, an immigrant from mexico and he was just so excited that one of the characters uh 
was Mexican. I mean, space, space Mexican and, and spoke with not just that, but he, he actually spoke with a space, uh, a space Mexican accent and space, you know, like, space Mexican accent. I don't and know just how much, how much this meant to, to this guy, uh, which I, you know, I think that's, I think that's great. I love it. I love it. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say. And again, like, let me just. Say, I think John Boyega is amazing. I love that guy. Daisy Ridley. <laughs> never seen her in anything else, but I totally will. Um, and and I'm really excited for the next movie that uh, Ryan Johnson is directing because I think he's done a lot of really interesting work, and I I trust his storytelling chops more than J.J. Mm, Abrams, mm, who okay, I think is a little bit of a hack. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm way out of my depth because I mean, I would say that I don't watch very many of these type of movies and never have. And I will say like, just to, just to, you know, finish this up, this thought, I think part of the reason that I generally never got into them was because I didn't really see anybody that I could connect with. I mean, that doesn't mean that like, just because you're female, you can only connect with female characters. That's reductive and dumb. But like when you are just sitting through like movie after movie where like the woman is like, just non-existent or like kind of dull or like this sort of like oh she's cool because like sometimes she has a gun and shoots people like that's not like that's not particularly like uh captivating and yeah. so you know i mean and again, and again like, that was like some a big women... step forward in 1977 but sure and like and right all like all love to carry fisher raised. but sure. but i think also like and and there's lots of women who would like fight me on this and be like no i i identify with luke skywalker and like i get mm-hmm. that but like there's only so many of these that I can, that I as a, like a young person could ever could sit through. Cause it was just like snore, you know, like who, who cares? Like this is dumb. Uh, the people who are making these movies clearly have like no regard whatsoever for my personhood or experience. So I, I why would I like spend my time or give them my money? And I think that this, like I have a little more interest in this movie because it seems like it's coming from a different place. Uh, I, I, that seems fair to me. I just, yeah. I just, I, I love the place that, place it's coming from i just uh, i just wish it was better yeah i mean it seems like it's coming from a place of like hopefulness or aspiration mm-hmm. or something you just wanted you wanted to be more impressed last note uh gender and and star wars um in in the original star wars uh while they were filming uh george lucas wouldn't let carrie fisher wear a bra and he told, he told her that they there were no bras in space <laughs> Are you kidding? I, I am wow, not. Okay. I am not. Do you think I, I couldn't make something like that up? Well, I hope you couldn't. <laughs> that's a good point. You make a good point. There are no oh, bras in space. That's awful. I mean, he obviously could make that up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is uh, right, and I mean, that's working condition. That's a question of like of work condition. Ah. Oh my god, people are so annoying and dumb and terrible. Moving on. Moving on. What's next? What I don't know. I mean, we could we can talk about while we're talking about gender. Why don't we talk about gender as a factor in performing savviness? Yeah. Okay. So I really I was listening to this. I was listening to this episode, the last one that we did, number six, and it was about for those who uh, don't remember, uh, it's about what this part was about pred- predictions and um, Amos talking about sort of like some concerns around. Um, well, do you want to say what your you want to sum up what your concerns? Well, were? we we were talking about sort of the the role of predictions, like uh, the the function that that prediction making serves to a certain type of uh, news junkie, the the ones that I call the the savvy uh, people mm-hmm. who who just want to seem like smart and a little bit above it all, and and, mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. just smart, but like they have like a certain sort of inside knowledge that other yeah. people don't have. Yeah, and we ended up talking a lot about like how 
um, that can be great if you really are a political political operative, if you're running a campaign, but if you're just sort of performing savviness as a way of staying outside of politics, um, by sort of staying in, if that makes sense, like you're sort of, you're such an insider that you don't even have to care. Um, and we talked about like, that's not really particularly useful as a form of civic engagement and especially like needing civic engagement, um, from like a, a really large portion of the population, this sort of like hurts the chances of that. And, and so if you go back and listen, you'll notice that we're comparing and contrasting and I, I put on this voice and it's a high voice and i say something like you know this is the kind of person no one wants to be like oh someday i could run for congress and maybe i could help yeah, people yeah, right? Right, right and then i put on a low voice and i was like oh yeah like we're just gonna we're just gonna like uh, sit this one out and let them destroy each other destroy themselves and then we can like recoup yeah. the blah 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 and get more seats and whatever and that was like i was performing gender in that moment right i was associating the like the naive fan with with femininity whether or not female, but like with a kind of like femininity or like childlike, you know, um, lack of majority. Right. And, or, and then like the sort of like, you know, more masculinized, um, savvy thing. And I think like when I was listening to it, I was like, Oh man, like, wow. Uh, and I think that there's a, I think there's like a lot in there. I think that's really true. And I think when, I mean, I will say in this last election, I think that there has, there was a, <sighs> there was a kind of, um, disciplining of female enthusiasm because there was a lot of talk about how there was no enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. Um, that people were sort of like, Oh yeah, sure. Whatever. I guess she's fine. She's better than whatever. Um, but then anytime, and this is anecdotal, but I also have seen, you know, I've, I've seen it. I've seen anecdotes on a wide scale. Anytime that there was enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton expressed by women, there was often a, a backlash, a social backlash sort of like, Oh, you know, um, to, to sort of to sort of take the wind out of that, mm -hmm. and I think like that happens to women in politics all the time because we're supposed to care, but then if we care too much, then we're sort of hysterical and we don't we don't ha we're not in possession of the facts and we're not in possession of like a, a good enough a savvy enough understanding and you know meanwhile like it's okay to be enthusiastic about male candidates much more, or if you're male, um, you get a lot more latitude for that kind of enthusiasm. And so I don't know, I don't know how to solve this, but I think it's worth putting it out there that even I, like even unconsciously in a kind of mocking way was demonstrating this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's it's depressing, super, man. It is. Uh, it is a little depressing. It's also super interesting. Hmm. Um, because I I totally didn't I didn't pick up on that when I didn't you even did know it. I was doing it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting I think I mean I think savviness this this sort of savviness I think it is hmm uh, it's interesting I'm uh, hmm. my own association is is that the primary audience for this sort of savviness is male. Yeah, that's that's squares with my sense. And and that's and 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 again I'm using savviness in my somewhat ironic yeah. uh, form yeah, here. Yeah, critical way. Yeah, that the that the people sort of most invested in in being savvy like this. Well, are, and you're using yourself as a model, right? Cuz in that episode you keep being like yeah. I'm describing this because this this is or was me at one point. Right. Yeah. Right. Um I don't know. I mean, I think one thing hmm so there's a question like, how do you, how do we sort of get out of this trap where it's okay for, it's okay to be enthusiastic or it's okay to be enthusiastic about 
about a female candidate. Um, the trap. Wait. So the trap is. I thought the trap was not being it not being okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I mean. I don't know, but if I could segue to something else that I think, like, uh, I wanted to touch on, but I think, like, you know, really fits in here is that, you know, one of the one of the most, I think, unbridled, joyfully, enthusiastically <laughs> uh, acceptable political enthusiasms or like or or like or like instances of excitement that we've had in a long time is the excitement that a lot of people had for Bernie Sanders, even though like from a savvy point of view, like from a savviness point of view, it's like, okay, this guy's like, it's, it's never going to happen. You know, he's, right. he's, you know, it's, this is ridiculous. He's, he yells at people. He's, he says he's a socialist. Um, by the way, uh, anti-Semitism is real and he's a Jew, right? Like if you're going to be really savvy about it, you would say like, yeah, okay. But you know, people were really super psyched and it was okay to be psyched. It was sort of so- like it you know, yeah. that was all right. And that was sort of like, in fact, if you, if you were a downer about, it, if you were like, yeah, you know, not my cup of tea, uh, especially if you were like, and I prefer this other candidate, it was like, now you declare war was coming. You know? And so sure. I, I think like that, that's gen- gendered too. And I, can, um, can I just jump, jump in with yeah. something? I think, I think I wish I had brought this up in the episode. Cause I think that's actually a great example of the phenomenon that I was discussing in the first part of, of that segment Mm. where, um, at the start of the primary there, any, any reasonable sort of projection would have said that Hillary was just going to mop the floor with Bernie. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and she didn't, I mean, she beat him soundly. It was, it wasn't particularly close. Um, I mean, she beat him by more than Barack Obama beat her in the previous primary. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. it was it, it was it was a solid it was a solid win, but but he certainly went further than yeah. than anyone expected at the beginning. And I don't think that further and longer, I think yeah, too, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I don't think uh, um I don't think that's just like uh, a function of his personal qualities. I mean, I no, think, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I think there is there's I think there were sort of structural reasons for that, and that's that's an example again where where that's something that forecasting missed um in it in it missed it because the the conditions that are the, sort of the inputs for the forecast have changed like the like the rules are actually changing mm. and quote unquote fringe candidates can now do really really well in primaries when they mm-hmm. couldn't uh 12 years ago mm-hmm. yeah i think that's i think um, that's right but but at the same time 12 years ago well, okay, maybe I, that's, not 12. I'm just, I'm just pu- pulling yeah. that number as like a while ago, but not that no, long no, ago. No, no, true. But like, I mean, so so I would say probably 12 years ago isn't going to do my example quite right. So I'll say 20 years ago, I don't see a woman. I mean, obviously, I, I don't see a woman getting the nomination of any major party. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the rules have changed, but they haven't really changed. In other ways, they, like they haven't changed enough. You know? Yeah, right. They've changed, you know, that that particular rule has has yeah. changed to some extent, but yeah. uh, you know, not as much as as uh a lot of us uh thought maybe yeah. or yeah. or hoped anyway. You know. So yeah, I mean, and again, so like po- let's I I think it's it's let's not uh I I think any analysis of the 2016 election and the results that doesn't include the fact that that she won the popular vote by 3 million votes is, is yeah. missing something important. Yeah, so, okay, that's a great point. So, yep, yep, you make a good point. Uh, you know, let's not forget that. 
As I don't want to forget that. No, and I, my only point is to sort of say like there was a there was a joyousness uh, and an unbridledness to the enthusiasm of support and excitement around Bernie Sanders that was I think sort of socially unacceptable uh, to display for the other candidate, you know? And, I and so like, I, I think that, and I do, I do, you know what I do, I'll stand by it. Like, I, I think that's gendered. I really do. And that I'm doesn't sure mean that every is. Bernie supporter is a dude or everyone knows a woman, blah, blah, blah. I just, I think that like political enthusiasm, there are, there are sort of like social norms around it that are sexist. So here's, yeah, yes. I, I want to push back on this a little bit though. Cause I think, I think there are, uh, uh, like let's I, I, to the best that we're able, I think w- we need to tease out uh, sort of uh, gendered factors here and Hillary Clinton specific factors. And, and this is obviously really, really hard. Um, but Hillary Clinton, she's not just a woman running for president. She's Hillary Clinton and she brings along her own stuff. And some of that is gendered as well. Uh, and some of it is is just like her own stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not ready to have that conversation until we have another woman candidate for president, and we can, or or, or, or let's say three, because three makes a trend, right? Like three I, makes a trend. I, I'm not ready to say which was her and which was gender until we have more examples. That's fair. I will say this: that that I see legitimate uh, legitimate enthusiasm for Elizabeth Warren that doesn't seem to be. Uh, I don't know, censured in the same way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Now, she's not running for president yet. She's though. not running for president and she's not running against someone else who people yeah. might feel enthusiastic yeah. about, you know? Yep. Yep. So yep. it's tough to know quite what to make of it, but you know. Yeah. I mean, everybody loves know. you when you're not running, right? Like, I mean, right. I mean, in, I mean, you saw the well, same thing with Hillary running, Clinton. But... I mean, she, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where, where when she wasn't running for anything, she, she tended to be more popular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, that could be just like, uh, you know, women in competitive situations, it doesn't look as good on them. Uh, yeah, for, I mean, the data is there reasons. for that. Or or it could mean that Hillary is not, is there something that people don't like about her when she's running? Yeah, but I mean, I wasn't even really talking about her as a candidate. I was talking about sort of like the 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 performance of political enthusiasm on the part of women versus men. Um regard you know i mean sort of i mean not regardless because obviously this was the situation but i do think like i am less i'm less confident about about making claims about her than i am yeah. about sort of like oh, I see. what it's like to be a woman who's interested in politics and when it's okay to get enthusiastic and excited even when it seems like a long shot and yeah. when it's not okay to to have those feelings but, but um or display I mean, them but sh- wouldn't the reception of those feelings be mediated by, uh, like Hillary specific things? Mm, you know what like I mean? What? Well, I'm just saying like, like, you know, if, if you started, if, you know, if you showed up and started, uh, we were having a, a conversation about movies and you just started going on and on about Lenny Riefenstahl and how great she was, <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, you know, I, I get uh. it, but I, your enthusiasm is really creeping me out and be like, you're just saying that cause she's a, a female. I would director. never say it. I, you would. No, no. But the, the point is like, although I have, I have had someone say that to me to, to be but, fair. <laughs> the point is like, okay, yeah, she is a female, but in like, obviously female directors don't get their due in 
conversations about film, but also there's like specific things about Lenny Riefenstahl that that make people queasy when you get too um, uh, enthusiastic about her. For people who don't know, she she was a Nazi. She was, uh, yeah. So, I, and again, I, not to equate Hillary Clinton with uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. Let's but, not do but that. But the point is just that 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 obviously, like like the way other people receive our enthusiasm for political figures depends on the way they feel about the political figure. And part of that is going to be gender. Um, but there could be other specific things as well. That's all. Yeah. But I, I would take it one further and say, okay, same scenario, uh, two so students, yeah, okay. two students or two scholars of, let's say, I don't know, German film. Let's say you're like a student in a, in a, in a class on German film. I think, a a, a man excited about Riefenstahl, could preface it and say, you know, yeah, she's a Nazi, but her films are really amazing and I'm really enthusiastic Hmm. about it and have less conversational discipline applied to him than the woman a woman saying the same thing especially especially if the woman is partly like yeah she's a nazi and that's really disturbing but also i'm interested in her as a female filmmaker right i think she's going to get much more pushback than than a guy so i mean that could be that makes sense because it's like oh you only like her because she's a woman but she's a nazi so what's wrong with you right whereas a guy can sort of be like let me like let me mediate this a little bit and say yes i recognize there's like serious political problems but i'm still interested in her at you know from a you know like as a student as a scholar like you know i want to do analysis um and i think like you know that gives you a little bit of cover that that if you're looking at a if it's a male student looking at a male filmmaker never even comes up because because male is the default and it's assumed so who cares like you know what i mean you don't have to say like i'm so excited about him because he's a guy and i'm a guy that never comes into it you know do you know who is a big fan of lenny riefenstahl tell me george lucas i mean she's a (laughs) She's really an amazing filmmaker. I mean, she, yeah. she's a very the, you know, she's last, good with the camera. The last scene of Star Wars is totally ripped off from Triumph of the Will. Uh, okay, I, I'm I'm not surprised. But so now you keep telling me that this movie is not about like about Germany, and no, no, then no. you keep giving the, me all these reasons no, that it is. Listen, listen to what I'm saying. So <laughs> the aesthetics are all about World War II. The uh-huh. the thematics are so about there's no there's no meaning ancient Rome and Vietnam. What's that? What? There's no meaning in aesthetics, is what you're saying? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that if you just like it, uh, it's it's that the 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 World War II Nazi Germany stuff is more like uh, like flavoring that's on it. <laughs> Delicious. But, yeah, you know, obviously, Delicious like the, the imperial officers dress like Nazis. Uh, they call them stormtroopers. We, we've talked about all this, but yeah. but the actual like thematic resonances are are much more about. Uh, Vietnam and in, in, in ancient Rome. Okay, but I think I will just say that that requires a kind of attentiveness to non-topical elements in those movies that like someone like me, I'm never going to get down that deep. I'm going to watch cool. it. I'm going to see the I'm aesthetics. Not, I'm going to be like, yeah. you should. Just, yeah, just, just you, know, you know, talking about George Lucas and Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> um, there was something else I wanted to say about all that, though. <sighs> what was it? I don't know. Gender, politics, film. Oh, man. <laughs> Was it about Bernie? Because I have one more thing to say about... Well, say your thing about Bernie and I'll try to I mean, to it's not really... It's not, it's not about Bernie, actually. It's not about Bernie at all. Well, Bernie whatever is... it's about, say it. Okay. You're so annoyed. Um, <sighs> you can't remember. I can't. I'm so sorry. Well, it'll come back to you. I know it will. Um, so I think I should have said in our discussion of social democracy, we got kind of bogged down because you were you were like, well, but isn't it just like, you know, aren't these policies that are kind of reformist policies? Like, isn't that just sort of where uh, social democracy is right now? And so that's fine. And I guess the thing that I should have said really clearly is that I think, you know, we have to remember socialism and social 
democratic socialism <laughs> democratic socialism specifically as an ideology it's not just a political party or a political platform it's a it's a worldview and it's a very intellectually it's a robustly theorized intellectual movement with really good writers and thinkers who are attached to it and i do think that given that there's that tradition um it's not just about what are we going to do today in parliament. It's about like embracing that whole kind of communitarian anti-individualistic or anti-hyper-individualistic um, theoretical apparatus. And so absent that, I do wonder, like if you're a person who's like, oh, I'm going to be a social Democrat now. If you don't have that sort of tradition, if you don't, if you, if it's not part of the way you're thinking, that's where I think there's a disconnect. I think I think that's interesting. I w- I would want to know more about my my guess is that 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 sort of statement is sort of coming from um a historical analysis of of social democratic parties in Europe and I I would I would like to hear from someone who's familiar with contemporary European politics to talk about the extent to which that's true of, of contemporary social democratic parties. You mean like, do you have to read all the greats in order to yeah. join the party? Like that, I mean, probably that, not. But is that, is that stuff that feels relevant or that people really care about now? And and I don't know the answer to that, but yeah, I mean, you know, I like think, obviously yeah. there is, there is this intellectual tradition, but does, but, but, but it's people an intellectual, care about it. I think, I mean, I, well, it's we as we've established, it's really hard to know what people care about. But I will say that, like, I think here's what I'll say: it's more true in social democracy than in other political parties and movements. Okay, you know, like, like so, you don't have to care. Like, you could be a, I don't know, like a, you could be. Uh, whatever you could be an american of of either like political party and like not have read a lot of thomas jefferson or really care very much about him and i don't think that that i mean this is this is a this is like a robustly th- thought i mean when marx is like the father of your movement right. you got to do some reading right i mean and that and that's really what i mean that, so that's I think absolutely that, part of that tradition i think that also just just points to a really interesting difference between uh parties in most places uh in the world that have mm. political parties and and parties in the US until very recently yeah whereas right. american parties have been really throughout most of our history have been really non ideological um or or mm. i think or, they wouldn't cop to their ideologicalness well or, or they haven't been they haven't been well ideologically sorted um so, Maybe so yeah. because they, they tended to be more coalitions of different interest groups and a certain sort of ideology would sort of like uh, emerge out of the coalition. Like, here's what we can sort of cobble together that people in our coalition are interested in. Um, but they weren't ideologically sorted. And, and you know, they political scientists have all these measures for um, uh, part, partisanship. And, you know, until recently, there were always you know, Republicans who were more liberal than some Democrats um, and specifically like Southern Democrats tended to be very, very conservative in at least in a lot of ways. Um, and so there were these like liberal Northern Republicans and, and conservative Southern Democrats. And then there were also liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. Um, 
but they were sort of coming from different parts of the country and representing different constituencies. Um, and that's not true anymore. American political parties are now very ideologically mm-hmm, coherent mm-hmm. and ideologically sorted. So the most conservative Republicans or the most conservative Democrats are now much more liberal than the most liberal right. Republicans. Um, and understanding that and sort of why that happened and the effects that it's having on our political systems is uh, super important to understanding like what just happened to us all. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that in most other places in the world that have political parties or that have like a, you know, it's interesting because in parliamentary systems, which we don't have, um, there is a lot more coalition building and working in coalitions. And yet right at the same time, there's kind of a, um, a separateness or like a, a like yeah. a like a articulated so in, ideology to, in, to the parties parlam- that join coalition in a parliamentary system the coalition building happens between parties yes yes that's what i'm saying yeah and, and in our system the coalition building happens within parties wow that's very pithy did right? you just come up with that right now no <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but right like 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 parties are always they're trying to figure out ways to peel off parts of the other right. coalition and incorporate yeah. them but they yeah. they can't alienate their uh coalition too much or, or elements with their coalition and and you'll see this like the the neoconservatives in the 60s they had been cold war liberals but i think they got fed up with something or other in the democratic party <laughs> i don't really know what yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, and decided happened. decided that they were going to be uh, uh, Republicans, and and so they right. they went over and I don't know probably had something to do with Nixon and Kissinger. I, I don't really know, um, but that was you know an example of like a coalition moving from one party to sure. another. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's all interesting. Uh, hmm. I I really want to come back more to this though this issue of uh, partisanship and um, yeah. And the effects on American politics, because I, I really think it's it's super important. Well, we oh, might... oh, another thing to say. Did though. you remember your thing? No. Oh, shit. Something about Nazis and gender. Um, I can talk about that all day. But just just to say another another difference between parliamentary systems and and our in presidential systems is that par- parliamentary systems have partisanship built in. Like the like the the institutions are built so as to uh, channel partisanship into a functioning government. Like you, uh, if you win the government, um, you you run it, and the opposition party can't do too much about it except voice their opposition and their loyal opposition. But they don't, yeah, they don't really get to do very much, and you run things, and that works well. Whereas in the American system, um, it's really built on the idea of um, rather than competition between parties, it's built on the idea of competition between branches uh, Mm. and that really breaks, right? That's the whole idea of checks and balances. They're checks and balances between the branches of government. But that that doesn't competition. Well, it doesn't sort of, right? Because you're competing for prerogatives and authority. And and, in the idea was that one branch wouldn't give up too much of its power to another branch because it would be sort of protecting it and, I, you know, yeah, I guess competing, sure, but um, but that that doesn't work very well with uh, high partisanship and ideologically so- sorted parties because then a branch of government doesn't have its own, let's say specifically the legislative branch doesn't have its own identity, and so it's willing to cede its power to a president of the same party. Mm, I see, I see, I see. Interesting. Okay, huh? 
all right. Or, or conversely, uh, uh, a Congress c- controlled by the opposition party to the president um, has every incentive to, to blow up the whole thing and, and make the country ungovernable, which they have the power to do because it's not a parliamentary system. Um, yeah, although I think, I mean, uh, we're way out of my depth, but I will say that, like, uh, initially, can, yeah. right? I mean, initially, the president was whoever won the most votes, and whoever won the second most votes was vice president, and they were supposed to work together, right. and right? And so, like, I I mean, if, if, like, you're sort of talking about, like, oh, these are these conceptions that were sort of meant to work in a certain way, I mean, in some ways, we're, I don't know how much that helps us. I don't know. I mean, we're pretty far from from that. Yep. I mean, because because whatever, like the the founders, well, and that didn't work. they didn't want to have point. political parties, right? Yeah. They didn't want to have political well, parties. They thought they thought that they could get away, and I mean that was that was dumb, right? I mean, but they thought that they could get away. They were with, right with, that political parties can cause huge problems. Yeah, but not having them is even worse. Well, they were they were wrong that they could stop them from happening. Yeah, and I mean, you know, right, there's no they, there's the no first thing that happened after the Constitution was signed was political parties. Well, and there's not any quote parties in the French Revolution, but there's factions, right? right. And they function like parties, yeah. so who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I think also like the it, I mean, it's just so it's so elite, right? The whole idea that like oh, we don't need to have parties; we'll just have like these 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 cogent yeah. guys like 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 civilly discussing and, things with and, each other, like like as if nobody needs some kind of collective representation. Give me a break. George Washington, and, you're well, killing think, me here. I think George. Wa- I, th- I think it's a mistake to read George Washington's protestations about factionalism in parties. Uh, I think it's a mistake to read them as um, like honest or well intentioned. But he he told the truth about that cherry tree. Yeah, right. No, but but he's like he's <laughs> he's making a a uh, it's a political attack. It's like my my enemies are part of a faction, yeah. but yeah. like the people on yeah. my team, we're not a faction. We're just good no, guys. No, no, I understand. The, but the but, other side is is a faction. Yeah, but even even absent that, I mean, there are people who I mean, I, I there are people who are going to need a party because no one's going to listen to them otherwise. Yeah, or or just like, you know, parties help people vote, right? Like you're st- mm-hmm. you're not just staring at a list of names. You're like, "Oh, I know these names have parties attached and I know roughly what those parties stand for." Mm-hmm. Um right. Yeah. So, uh maybe so, we, hey, maybe we should sorry, stop there. Yeah, but you didn't remember your thing, which I is didn't, sad. I did, and I'm so thought- upset. I'll, if I remember, I'll just like record myself saying it and stick it in there somewhere. <laughs> It'll be a bonus to the bonus. Yeah, it was something. It was it's something really smart bonus. about. I bet it was. Nazis I'm sure it always gender. is. Maybe it wasn't Lenny Riefenstahl, Heidegger. Some I don't know something in there. Wow. Okay. Maybe when I'm listening it's to getting this editing, dark now, it'll, it'll remember. Yeah, it'll remember. It'll it'll remember in my head. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do you social hey, media? so I mean, I'm just looking this through my list really to make fun. sure we got everything. Oh, yeah, last last thing I'm going to say. Yeah. For, in last episode, we were talking about um people getting confused about what socialism is, and and we were sort of blaming Bernie Sanders because he's just going around saying like oh, I'm a socialist, and you're like, no, not really. Uh, just I think one other thing that contributes to people's confusion about socialism, like yeah. what, what is socialism, is is the fact that we've had eight years of Republicans running around calling. Um, Obama a socialist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, but I like Obama. I guess I'm yeah, a socialist. Yeah, I'm a socialist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember, no, absolutely, I remember in the 90s, though, seeing um, a bumper sticker, an anti-Bill Clinton bumper sticker that had his, <laughs> it had his name. It was sort of like a spoof on, like a, like a, supportive bumper sticker yeah. but the c was like a hammer and sickle oh yeah so i think this is not new like so, this idea I mean, that like you know all these people are communists sure. um i mean that, but right if you like if you like something about them then you're like okay so i like communism then right and and um 
And I just think it's become much more prevalent. Like, yeah, that was definitely sort of like a thing that happened in the 90s uh, with Bill Clinton, where he was sort of uh, certain people were trying to delegitimate him by calling him a, a communist or a pot smoking draft dodger or whatever. But it just it went to a whole new level with uh, Well, he with did Obama. smoke pot and he was a draft dodger, but he was no, not a communist. Calling him a, a pot smoking draft dodger is totally legit. Um, <laughs> calling Obama a socialist. Uh, maybe maybe anti not so much. Kenyan anti colonialist is is uh, less less legitimate. He might be an anti colonialist. Uh, not clear. To not me. in the way that yeah, Derek D'Souza no. meant it. Right, and I I mean I guess I just think um, maybe this ties back. Uh, we've got to we've got to stop this. But let let me just say um, I think this ties back to my critique of um, political analogies. Maybe it's not that I'm mad. Maybe I'm not mad that like we're muddying the pool and we're saying people are socialists when we're not. When they're not, maybe it's that I don't like all this analogizing. Why can't we just have the world we have and try to understand it on its own terms? Why do we always have to make these analogies? Like Trump's a fascist and 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 Ooh. and Obama's a socialist, right? Oh come I mean, on, you're you're a poet. You don't really want to go down this road but the analogies are bad no like right because if you if you get rid of analogies then you're getting rid of metaphors uh you're getting rid of ex- the the expressive power of language then i, I really no, i'm not mm, i'm not getting any of those th- mm, i'm i'm if i'm a poet mm, then i believe that clarity in language is important and it's sloppy and lazy to just sl- stick labels on things without thinking about them carefully okay. and it's also a problem i think to fetishize the period let's say 1917 to 1945 and say that every political situation that we encounter has to fit into that box like well i don't disagree that, with that that doesn't make any sense and even if it did uh most people don't understand that period well enough i say this from my historian high horse to actually make that like work for us all so I, why do it i agree with that you know hey, um we we tried to stop like five minutes ago let's, i know let's give it another shot now because I, I really have to pee <laughs> ladies and gentlemen we're gonna go now so that amos can take care of some urgent business don't worry i'm, I'm gonna edit all this out okay good no so you're not I, are you this no i'm not <laughs> i knew you wouldn't Ah, I've been meaning uh, to make. Don't worry, I'll edit this out. Jokes all season, and and I keep forgetting. So I maybe just... you could just edit them back in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey uh, everybody! Thanks. Th- thank for you listening. so much for listening. Um, this was fun. It was fun. The whole season was fun. It was really fun. Um, stay I'm tuned so for season it. two. We'll we'll be out. I don't know a month, something like that. Yeah. We're going to take a little weeks. break, yeah, get, get ourselves break. together, think of some, some cool things to talk about. You could tell us what you, if you want us to talk about anything, yeah. you, could, you could tell us and we could decide if we wanted to, to do that. Check out the website, T is in, T-M-W-I-W.net, T is in, tell, M is in me, <laughs> W is in Y, I is in I'm, W is in wrong, dot net. Mm-hmm. Uh, send us feedback with the, the, the contact uh, form there. You can follow the show on Twitter, TMWIW Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Amos Worth. You can't follow Sophie on Twitter. And better things to do with my time. Yeah, I think that's yeah. it. Tell, yeah. tell your friend, tell your friends about the show. Your friends, they would love this show. It's because it's uh it's uh entertaining. And your, yeah, it's your really friends fun. are bored. They need something to listen to. It's really fun. So bye everybody. Have a really good um little while and we'll see you, hear you, speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye.